bottom, it's time to thank some people who are on our side because we're on their side. You found a new tool, software, Blue Rhythm commissioning software. Robert, I sure have. I think Blue Rhythm is what I've been looking for all these years. Building commissioning can be chaos at the best of times. Most projects I consult on really suffer from poor information management. You know, it's 2019, yet the property and construction industry seems to be firmly stuck in the 20th century paperwork world. I think people mistake emails and PDFs and Microsoft files on their servers and all the different PCs as a digital solution. In reality, it's just unorganized chaos. Do you want to streamline your commissioning process and save time and money? Do you want to go paperless and increase efficiency? Blue Rhythm is a cloud-based software solution built specifically for building commissioning professionals. Blue Rhythm digitizes your custom forms and checklists, allows collaboration across project teams, and automates reporting, leaving you to focus on what matters. Their team help you onboard the test sheets you've developed over the years. You can even send it some in paper, and they will digitize that and put it in the Blue Rhythm system for you. In my opinion, Blue Rhythm pays for itself in time saved on paperwork on a single project. For a demo or to start a free trial, go to bluerhythm.com. That's where rhythm is spelled R-I-T-H-M, like algorithm. Bluerhythm.com. Tell them the edifice complex sent you there. In a world where high-performance, zero-defect buildings are hard to find, two men are on a mission to disrupt the status quo. Welcome to the Edifice Complex, the property design and development podcast. Let your hosts, Adam Muggleton and Robert Bean, keep you up with who is innovating and doing great work, perspective on the adjacent possible, and challenges to the status quo. Welcome to the Edifice Complex. I'm Robert Bean, your co-host and unofficial mediator. Here again with my colleague, official agitator, friend, and Yoda of most everything to do with buildings, Mr. Adam Muggleton. Say hello, sir, Yoda. Hello. So I'm excited because today is a first. This is the first time we've had a guest back on for a second interview. That's right. It is only appropriate with this guest. (laughs) That's right. So we have an alumni back on, Jerry Udelson, and Jerry's got a new book out, so we want to definitely hear what he's got to say, and we're not going to do any intro because Jerry doesn't need any introduction. Jerry, good to have you back on the show. Thank you, Robert. Thank you, Adam. So the new book, your memoirs, is this your final word or are you going to keep writing? If it were up to my wife, if I started to write anything more, I would be shot. (laughs) (laughs) All right, well, let's get those words out. What's, What's the new book all about? Talk to our listeners. So it's called The Godfather of Green, an eco-spiritual memoir, and it talks about my long career as an environmentalist of various stripes since the first U.S. Earth Day in 1970, where I was a campus organizer. And then it goes into a spiritual journey that I began a few years after that and weaves those two together. And the whole idea is if we're going to protect the Earth from human activity over the long haul and create environments that are suitable for human life, we've got to do it from a different cultural and I would say spiritual standpoint than we've done to date. And that is the essence of the book, to show that an inner practice of meditation and mindfulness can go together hand in hand with protecting the earth. 
That's interesting, actually, because I like the macro on that, the macro view, the holistic view. But I want to sort of go back. I've, I've been researching the book and some of the sort of notes you've made during the book. And, you know, you go back to the 70s and the first Earth Day, and it, you said that after meeting Babu Mutananda, I've butchered that, I apologize for that, in 74, you became more aware of your spiritual self and began meditation. So how does that weave into green buildings? You know, you start, you're young, you're thrust in, you meet this guy, he sort of like affects you. So how does that channel into green buildings and your work? Well, after meeting Baba Muktananda, I began this spiritual journey. And a good part of it is coming to understand the roles that we play in the world. And a lot of work that we do is, I would say, ego-driven. We want to be noticed. We want to be awarded, etc. And the essence of approaching the same work from a spiritual perspective is to really understand that the work is service and to offer it as service. So this was not an easy concept because I had gone to Caltech and Harvard. I had prestigious degrees. I was passed my orals for a doctorate in engineering at Caltech. I was one of what Tom Wolfe's book, Bonfire of the Vanities, called Masters of the Universe, right? Yes. <laughs> and that was the sort of prevailing theme was you know, get rich, stay rich, etc. And it really wasn't for me. And it took me a while to figure that out and a long time really of coming to understand how you could still do good work in the world, but do it from a very different viewpoint. So after 20 years of this practice, 25 almost, I came across the Green Building Movement, which struck a resonant chord and from a couple of points of view. In the 70s, I had worked with the state architect in California, Sim Vanderein, who's one of the real founders of the whole school of sustainable design. And Sim was a professor at Berkeley and also took a position as a state architect under Governor Jerry Brown and designed what was at the time probably the most advanced office, government office building in the U.S., in Sacramento. And so I had learned a lot. I hung around people who had that viewpoint and kind of dovetail with my environmental concerns and my advocacy for solar energy and later wind power. So when the Green Building Movement came around 20 years later, all of a sudden it was like, yes, I recognize this. Yes, this is what we were all talking about with during the time of the Whole Earth Catalog and Buckminster Fuller's influence on design and all of the work that was done at the University of Oregon. And you may recall, Chris Alexander had a book called A Pattern Language, which attempted to put sustainable design into a broader context of how you could replicate it. So by that time, the Bream system had already gotten established in the UK. And ultimately, the U.S. Green Building Council, where I was started to be active, and I co-founded the first chapter, which was binational, included British Columbia, Oregon, Washington. I was active in that, and we started the lead system. Well, what do we do? We hired one of the experts on Bream and brought him over to the U.S. to help create the lead system. Right. So lead is a direct offspring of Bream, and also the same system had come to Canada in various guises, one called BPAC and various things in the 90s. So everybody was now talking about this. And I started to give a lot of time and effort beyond the 
confines of my regular job, which is working with a consulting engineering firm, to developing green building, eventually training several thousand people in it. But it was all from this very different viewpoint. You know, it was like, what can I offer? How can I support what these people are doing? And so it had the aspect of what you might call selfless service to it. Yeah, sure. I I still had this little ego that wanted to be noticed and (laughs) so forth. But I ended up basically putting in lots of extra time, as my wife will tell you, beyond my regular job, writing books, giving talks, flying here and there around the world. But I thought it was in the service of a larger cause, which was once we found out in the early 2000s by redoing all of the energy numbers that it wasn't that electricity was causing carbon dioxide, it was what was using electricity, and that was heavily buildings. And so I think buildings account for something like 70% of electricity use in the U.S. So all of a sudden it was like, well, if you're going to protect the planet, you really have to double down on buildings. And that led me to really start spending lots of time and eventually led to the books and the speaking engagements and so forth. But at the same time, I was continuing this meditation practice. Muktananda had passed on in 1982 and his successor, a woman, was my teacher. And so I continued. And as I show in the book, I kind of intersperse. One is about uh, solar power, one chapter, another is about spiritual wedding that we had. And so I'm trying to get people to think, well, for themselves, how could I link what I really want to do in life with the work that I do? Because, you know, we're not our work. We're much bigger than our work. And we... Mm participate in so many different communities, whether it's our family, our church, or synagogue, or mosque, whether it's our book club. I mean, we're involved in so many different ways in, in our communities and in our lives that we were not our work. But our work is important if it advances a larger purpose, which is, you know, for those of us in the buildings business, it's about creating environments for people to be healthy and to live, to work, to study, to play, and to do those with very light impact on the planet. Mm -hmm. And so I think those twin interests of mine, what I tried to show in the book, is how they join together. And at the end of the book, I decided, okay, that's fine for me, and maybe it's fine for other people with snow on top of the mountain, so to speak, who are getting older. But what about young people? What about the young climate strikers? What have I learned that I could actually tell them? And so the epilogue to the book is written in the form of an open letter to a young climate striker. And the essence of it is, if you're going to be in this for the long haul, you can't just be against something. You have to be for something, for a difference. And you have to approach it from a viewpoint of service. And so that's kind of the end of the book is like, what, what could I, an Earth Day veteran of 1970, well, you can do the math on that. That's a seasoned citizen for sure. What could he tell a teenager today? And, you know, teenagers don't like to listen to anybody, their parents, their grandparents, anybody older. But what could I say? So that's the end of the book, the epilogue. And it is in the form of an offering from my point of view. And so that, I think, is a book of special quality 
that's it's not just a, a autobiography, a career summary. I think it goes a lot deeper than that and maybe will help other people figure out ways they can participate in this effort, which is going to last the rest of their lives to bring climate and civilization back into balance. Hmm, I love that. that I yeah. love that. This whole discussion, Jerry, reminds me, and I don't remember in the first interview if we talked about it, but the words green and the words sustainability and all of these buzzwords. And, you know, I think the end of the road, like when we get to the last end of the road, it's all about earth stewardship. And I think about times and, you know, talking about spirituality as it relates to this industry is an interesting one. I'd like to talk to you a little bit more about that and how you got over the awkwardness of it. Because for some people, it's awkward to talk about spirituality, especially as it relates to this industry. But when I think about my own times up in the mountains, you know, sitting beside a stream with the sun, you know, shining on your face and you're listening to the water and you're listening to the birds and you think to yourself, there's two thoughts there. You know, how can I protect this for the future generations and have other people experience what you're experiencing now? And we can do that with architecture and buildings. And then there's other ones who will say, how can I prevent people from coming into this space and enjoying what I'm experiencing and being greedy about the whole thing, you know? And there's a big difference in the spirituality of those two different people, right? Well, we used to have a joke that conservationists was someone whose ink had just dried on their mortgage in the suburbs. <laughs> you know, I, I, I've got mine. Now you go get yours. The problem, as Gandhi once said, there's enough for everyone's need, but not for everyone's greed. And we have been greedy. I mean, when I was born, there were roughly 2 billion people on the earth. And now we're approaching 8 billion. Mm. And if 2 billion wasn't a big drain on Earth's resources, 8 billion sure is. And we're probably going to peak at somewhere around 10, barring catastrophes like asteroid landings and impacts. But we don't know how culturally to make this transition. And I'll just give you an example. We're about 250 years into the fossil fuel era. If you go back to the first steam engine, right, 1759, I think, or 69. And the steam engines, one of its first uses was to run pumps to dewater the coal mines in England so that you could mine more coal, right? And that would in turn fuel more steam engines. And that sort of accelerating process took off from there. And 120 years ago in Texas, we discovered the first real gusher of oil. And at the same time, people, Henry Ford and Auto Diesel, and those people were all developing this mode of transportation built around combustion. So we've been 250 years into the combustion era, and we're probably going to be another 50 years in it at some level. But we now have the knowledge as Buckminster Fuller said, to create prosperity for everybody on earth. But it's going to be a different kind of prosperity. It's not going to be, as a a Canadian friend of mine in Toronto told me about her jetting off to the Azores on vacation just because it sounded like a good idea. We're not going to have that kind of world necessarily where you're just running all over the place consuming fossil fuels. But we can have a high quality of life for everybody. And we We're already halfway there. Think about it this way. Half of the world is now middle class, according to the last surveys I read. 
And what does that mean? It really means that they're not worried about today's meal, tomorrow's meal, next week's meal. They're not worried about starving. And if you look at human history, up until very recent times, almost all people were living at the edge of starvation. And one bad harvest, one bad potato famine, or two or three in the case of Ireland, and you're dead or you're emigrating. You're going somewhere else. Yeah. So that's all of a sudden, we're now prosperous. We have longer lifespans, better health care, et cetera, on a global basis. Doesn't mean everybody's been brought along, but certainly very many have. And so we know how to do that, but that prosperity has been bought at a very dear price, which is the rise of carbon and related greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. So we need to figure out how to transition. The problem is our real issues are not technological or economic, they're cultural. We have this core belief in the individual, which comes out of the Enlightenment, so that's 200 years ago now, that the individual should be able to be self-determining. This is very different culture than the traditional culture, which was village-oriented, group-oriented, etc. And so the problem with culture is it's hardwired. Yeah. Economics can change, as we're seeing right now in our uncontrolled experiment with the coronavirus. Economics can change in a heartbeat, but the cultural forces behind the economics and deriving from it don't change very fast because most of us think the way that our parents thought with some minor changes because that's how we were raised. And they thought the way their parents thought. And, you know, over time, it's taken 100 years for women to be seriously considered to be a U.S. president or maybe a Canadian PM, I think since they first got the vote. So that's like 50 years now into the women's movement, gay rights movement, et cetera. And cultural norms are shifting gradually. So you begin to see that cultural change is a multi-generational activity. And our problem today is we don't have that much time for the old people to pass and the new people, younger people with different cultural ideas to come forward. And so we're in this box. And I, I like to think in a way that humanity has the power to change culture because we now have a media system, social media, that allows us, as we're doing right now, to talk to each other directly and not have it mediated by a third party, so to speak. But we have a superpower, and I'd like to sort of bring that into the conversation. Humanity has a superpower. And I got this idea by listening to uh, Greta Thunberg, the teenage climate activist who has autism. And she's often referred to autism as her superpower because it allows her to do things without worrying about how people will think of her. She doesn't have that response. I think that's probably a a very facile way to say it, but it's not fully accurate. So what is our superpower? Our superpower is our collective ability to do research and development on a global scale very fast. And I just give you one example. I just read yesterday or the day before that Oxford University seems in England seems to be the farthest along in developing a vaccine because they've researched this coronavirus type, not necessarily yeah. COVID-19, but they've been researching coronaviruses for 20 years. At the same time, a pharmaceutical company in India has announced that they are ready to make 40 million doses right away. They're gearing up to do that of this particular vaccine. Now, 
if you go back 100 years to the last real pandemic, we didn't, weren't able to do that. We had to accept the losses. Yeah. We're looking now at a million people dying worldwide, but somewhere between 50 and 150 million died in a much smaller population 100 years ago. So we now have the ability to quickly respond. That's great. The problem we have with climate change, of course, is that we have the boiled frog problem. Yeah. Yeah. It keeps getting turned up bit by bit, and we keep finding ways to sweat a little bit better. And all of a sudden, we've already baked into the pie two or 300 years of ocean temperature rises by what's there now until that natural ocean CO2 cycle with the atmosphere can basically put it in the ocean. At the same time, what we have put there is acidifying the oceans so that the pH is going up and that in turn is decimating lots of things like coral reefs and the the rising temperatures are decimating fish stocks on which something like 20% of the world's population depends for food. So we've got these sort of whole series of issues that aren't going to go away that fast the way a viral crisis might go away. And we can't social distance from the atmosphere because we all got to breathe. So in a looking for global leadership in an era in which people are pulling away from thinking as one earth. Yeah. One of the effects of the pandemic has been, you know, watch out for your own country, etc. Yeah. And that's quite natural, but we now need to figure out culturally how to go back to kind of where we were, which is starting to look at the earth as a whole. And, you know, we're only 50 years into that era. That's two generations. You know, we only saw the earth from space roughly 50 years ago. (laughs) We only got the emotional impact of seeing the earth with that famous photo called Earthrise you know, the desolate moon in the foreground, the verdant blue-green earth in the background, everything else black in the cosmos. You know, that was a cultural touchstone moment that we live in now. And most young people today would think that's totally natural. Well, the earth is all we got and we better get good at it, except for the few, you know, Mars fans that are out there that somehow read The Martian or saw the movie and figured out, well, we could make a go of it. Uh, Good luck. One and a half half times farther out from the Earth, uh, from the Sun. And uh, I just read the Artemis Project, or Artemis, the sequence novel that showing how you can make a go for it on the moon, and you just can't. So why not act with some gratitude towards what we've been given and quickly make the transition? And I think that's the that's certainly the context we're in now. And I just want to like then tie this back into the book with one quick example. You know, when Nelson Mandela took over South Africa in 1993, so 25 years ago, you know, they instituted what they called truth and reconciliation commissions. In other words, there were five times as many black Africans as white South Africans, and they could have just run roughshod over the new minority that was out of power, but they decided instead to approach it from a standpoint of what I would call love and compassion, realizing that, yes, people had committed a lot of really bad things, 
but they were still going to be our neighbors. Yep. They were still going to be part of our community. And we had to dialogue about how that was going to take place. And they had to own up to what they had done. And one of the problems we have in the U.S. is we had our civil rights movement. We gave equal rights to everybody on paper, but we never really owned up to what had taken place. And I think that is still dogging us. And you can see it in the political environment today. So that's where I think the spiritual qualities have to be applied to the climate crisis movement as well. It's fine to go out and sue all the oil companies, but now when you go and you publish the home address of their executives on social media as an invitation to personal harassment, you've overstepped that boundary of love and compassion. Yes, there should be justice for bad things that have been done, but we have a system for that. What we don't have is a system for ostracizing our neighbors because of the work that they've done for our convenience. We always want to just pull up to the pump, fill up the tank, and take off. And that's the way most of us are, and we should recognize we've had a role in this as well. And come at it from, I think, a slightly different angle. So that's part of the finish to the book is to say, can we take this spiritual journey that I've been on and still am on? Because when you think you've finished it, then you've lost. (laughs) So (laughs) now I'm perfect. So it doesn't quite work that way. You know, what really works is that over time, your bad qualities get attenuated and your better nature starts to come to the forefront. And I think that's the experience that most people have. So we have to think about the same way responding to the climate crisis. So that is the essence of the book. And that's why I think the book actually, and there's stuff in there about the green building movement and my experiences in the green building movement. And there's a little bit of truth telling there, like the previous book, but I didn't want to like have this, you know, nobody listened to me and look at how bad things are kind of book. I wanted to say, we have to understand that we're all part of this system and we all had different parts in it. And to some degree, we can respond differently. And I just sort of like to make that last note. We don't have to react when people praise us or blame us, but we can respond from a different place. And I think that is the essence of where we need to go now with the green building movement is we need to get back to the basics, which was designing buildings in harmony with the environment of both people and planet. And that, I think, has kind of been lost with the checklist and number systems, because as I documented in a book in 2013, The World's Greenest Buildings, you can build fabulous buildings that perform well, that are documented, that have nothing to do with a particular rating system. They may, in fact, decide to pursue a rating just for PR reasons, but they were designed by people who really thought a lot about it and really had their value systems clear. And I think that's the essence of any good green building movement. And I think the thing that's still missing today, is the sense of wanting to include everybody and not just be for the top echelon, because that's kind of where we've stalled. I feel, in the green building movement globally. And I think that there are other things out there that are coming online that relate to health. And certainly with the Mm. coronavirus pandemic, we're 
much more interested in health now than ever before in buildings. And we realize now that people have a, are going to have a choice about whether they even want to work in our building. Because yeah. you're a young person and you're going after a job today. It's like, well, how many times a week do I have to be in this awful place? You know? exactly. <laughs> right. right. The one good thing to come out of yeah. this pandemic, hopefully, is the end of cubicle dwelling. So it's interesting, your reference to the movie Bonfire of the Vanities, that is a great movie. Tom Hanks movie. Tom Hanks as a bad guy Bond trader, Master of the Universe. That is the equivalent nowadays of having Tom Hanks star as a guy in Billions, right? <laughs> well, Tom Hanks is a great actor, so he could play any role. Oh, yeah. Yeah, man, if he'd have died during the coronavirus, that would have been it. America would have just half cried itself to death, right? It's just like, thank God he lived. But... Interesting. So the other quote I was reading associated with your book was from Philip Roth. And he said, radical change is a feature of American life. That is the only permanent thing we have. Now, I wholeheartedly agree with that. The only thing that's constant is change, right? But so let's take where we were, which is say pre-industrial revolution where everyone was starving to death, right? You know, there's never been a better time to be alive than there is now in terms of being fed, being safe. I'm talking in aggregate here. And then One of my favorite shows, let's talk about Star Trek Next Generation, right? So in Star Trek, that is probably the only working version of communism you'll ever see on TV, right? There is no lack of food. It's all done by a replicator. Everybody has purpose. So everybody is driven by exploration and sort of like self-actualizing, being the best they can be, right? So the question is, how do we get from where we are now to Star Trek? (laughs) And I mean that in a general way. Well... You know, everything happens at both micro and macro levels. So I think yeah. that the, the micro level is we work on ourselves. In fact, one of the quotes I didn't put in the book, which is one of my favorites, is all the problems in the world derive from people's inability to sit quietly in a room by themselves. <laughs> so true. <laughs> so true. So the first thing is let's, and by the way, this is not news. I mean, there's something by, the last survey I saw in the U.S. 2012 was something like 20 million people in the U.S. actively practice meditation. Mm. So there's a lot of people out there, good-hearted people who are wanting to do the work, but we've got kind of an ossified political system now that is forcing us to do the work in other venues. And I think there's pros and cons. I think in some ways, it's good that our federal government is basically uh, moribund because in terms of its ability to change anything, because it can also create a lot of harm Yes, by, by doing that. And that would be more of a libertarian point of view. But we have now something like a third of the economy is nonprofits in the U.S., if you count universities and schools right. and everything there. Another third is government and the rest of the third, the so-called private sector. We start to look at ways in which civic action can change things. And it is, it's certainly going back to that Philip Roth quote, the 60s were a time of radical change. If you go back then and you look at history, and most people listening to this may be too young to recall it, but America's cities were on fire with race riots. Yep. Detroit, Washington, Oakland, Los Angeles. I mean, where I grew up when I was a, in college, 30 miles from my house, 30,000 people rioted for a week, burning down the good part of the black section of South Los Angeles. So this was on fire. The women's movement was just getting started. The gay rights movement started in 
1969-70 period. We had the Vietnam War protests going on. And then we had things like Earth Day, where we had 20 million people, approximately close to the population of Canada, out demonstrating for a cleaner world. And that was 10% of the U.S. population at the time. And I like to say that, you know, among politicians' skills is the ability to count. (laughs) Just. (laughs) And, And when they counted 20 million people in the streets and on the campuses and in the schools, all of a sudden in the next five years, just about all of the environmental protection laws that we have in place now were enacted. Yeah. And that is something that you say, well, there are these tipping points. There are these times Mm -hmm. in which the pressure for change builds up and builds up and builds up. And all of a sudden, the political system responds and responds in a hurry. And then, of course, there's a period of consolidation and Mm. then the period of challenge and so forth. But we've held on to those things. And that, I think, can happen at the same way with the climate crisis. But it will disenfranchise, in a way, a lot of people who are currently at the top of the heap. So that's where the battle comes in. And that's where each of us has to be active in our own ways to talk to our neighbors. And one of the people that I love to follow interestingly enough, only posts on Twitter is a climate scientist named Catherine Hayhoe, who teaches at Texas Tech. It's like if you were on a, a farm, hay and hoe. So, and she is an early 40s professor and actually the lead author on four U.S. climate assessments. So she's definitely a high-ranking climate scientist. And she talks, and also an evangelical Christian married to a pastor. So she is very much active in the faith community talking about climate issues and the proper responses, which is something that most scientists can't do. They don't Mm. understand. They don't have necessarily a personal faith or they're not articulate about it, or they don't want to present their results that way. But she's done both. And I respect her a lot for that. And now she's on video, YouTube, and TED Talks everywhere. And She's basically teaching the world through the method of podcasts and Zoomcasts how to think about climate science. Right. So all of a sudden, it's and she has her whole share of trolls on Twitter, but she takes that as a sign that she's having an effect. And the point that she makes that I wanted to make is there's only about 10% of the people that by survey who are permanently dismissive of climate change as a phenomenon, human-driven, what they call anthropogenic. And mm. there's only 10% of the people. So why not address the 40% or so that's still making up their minds through dialogue and conversation? And just as Greta Thunberg says, the science, which is pretty overwhelming, and you have to get started because the thing that the science doesn't tell us is we don't know what we don't know. The science is only telling us what the science has been able to research and document, et cetera. We don't know what the second and third order effects are, how these things accelerate, multiply, et cetera. I mean, who would have predicted that a little bug in the middle of China would bring (laughs) the world economy to its knees in three months? 
And it shows, shows you how fragile the world economy really was, right? Well, I think it just shows us we don't know what we don't know. And nobody, yeah. and by the way, this had been well predicted, including by our resident mm. epidemiologist, Dr. Anthony Fauci, published a study in 2017, which showed all of these pandemics around the world in, over the last 20 years and made a strong case that this is going to happen in big way soon and we should be prepared for it. And of course, we were unprepared globally because we don't like to do stuff we don't have to do. And then when we have to do it, we can't do it fast enough, right? So, <laughs> you know, that's part of human nature because, you know, the world used to change pretty slowly. You know, when I grew up, we didn't have seatbelts in cars. We didn't have shoulder harnesses. We didn't have catalytic converters. We certainly didn't have satellite radio. All of this stuff took time to come in and took a lot of work on the part of a lot of people, including engineers figuring out the best way to do things and politicians figuring out what we ought to do, et cetera, and drivers changing their habits. So we've got a lot of work ahead to make this transition, but we certainly have done it many times before. Yeah, I believe yeah. I'm a big fan of like wave theory, like contractive waves. So I think like First World War was a big major global upset, right? Empires fell, new empires rose, economies went bust. My view is things only change significantly when they break, right? So the First World War and the aftermath of that was an example of that, which led to the Great Depression, right? And at that point, there was a reevaluation of our relationship with capitalism. The 60s was another example of that. There was a Second World War, people come back, their children are born, you know, there's this wave of change, of want to change. And again, I, I would argue in the 60s, and it played out sort of badly in the 70s, that that was another re-examination of our relationship with capitalism and how we want to interact with it. And I think we're just entering another stage like that, another wave where we've come from this period of prosperity relatively, and we're going into a period where we're re-examining our relationship with capitalism, but also with that, our relationship with our health, our buildings, and how we interact with the climate, right? I think all this is sort of interacting now, and we're coming into this re-examination. And you can choose to ignore it, or you can get and get run over by it, or you can choose to participate. And I think your book is well-timed, because I think that's what you're getting to, right? You're getting to, there's this confluence of macro influences, like piling in on each other. It's like a you know, it's like a pylon game. And at some point, it gets that pylon gets so big, you can't ignore it. So, yeah. yeah I think it's like the, you know, the grain of sand analogy when yes, yes. all of a sudden a, a mound of sand becomes unstable. Yes. And you don't know which grain it's going to be, but you know grains are continuing to be added. Yeah. And in terms of the timing of the book, I like to say in love, war, and business, timing is everything. Yes. So <laughs> maybe... Maybe the timing will be fine. But, you know, for me, it was a quote I had read many years ago that before one passes on, one should do an accounting of one's life. And so that was like the first germ or seed that got me started. And, you know, the first couple of drafts were pretty boring because, you know, when you write your own autobiography, it's like, <laughs> well, this happened, then that happened, then this happened, then that happened. I met my spouse, and then this happened and these kids came along and, you know, it's like, you know, who cares? And so, you know, it's like, and in fact, one of the people who work with me on a lot of books says her first response 
because I asked her to look at it, her first response was, well, this would be a very nice thing for you to share with your family about what you've done. <laughs> and I'm like, well, that's like what you call damned with faint praise. Yes. And, and so I said, I better go deeper. And interestingly enough, in the process of writing and reflecting on my experiences, I'm not a journalist. I'm not professionally a writer, you know, sort of by avocation. And so, you know, if you're a real writer, you keep journal after journal and you can go back and there will be conversations you had in 1982 and 1995 and you have all that material. And, and all I had was my recollections, but I did have a couple of journals from the period when I first met my meditation teacher and I had various experiences, which I share in the book. And so that was very helpful. And then the second benefit was that my wife, who's now Oh, a wife of 35 years, roughly, forgets nothing. That's a good thing. <laughs> so every transgression that I've ever made is stored in the Akashic records of her memory. But it was also good for reconstructing dialogue. Like, what did I first say when I met you? What did we talk about? It's like, most guys don't remember that kind of stuff. It's like, you know, go get the girl, get the girl, marry the girl, and then figure out what you're doing, right? <laughs> Yeah. Well, Jerry, that's like, I'm impressed. You actually load up your own bear trap and then step on it when you ask your wife that question. <laughs> well, yes, and I suspect that there's more than one fur trapper that's done that. But, you know, it was important that we have that relationship, which is a big part of my life, and that I sort of report on it accurately, if you will. Or, you know, what was the motivation when I asked you to marry me? What did I actually say? You know, and where were we at? <laughs> How much begging was involved? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was, it was, it's a long story. It's in the book. But it, you know, it's funny because I knew where we were. We were on the North Shore of Oahu. We were in Hawaii for a week. And I thought it was in one place on the North Shore, and she was sure it was on another place. So, you know, we were pretty close in remembrances on a lot of stuff. But long story short, I was able to start writing about experiences and to sort of link these two parts of my life together in a way that I think not only clarified it for me, but also showed some lessons that I had learned and some lessons that I had to learn along the way. And I think that's ultimately what people might enjoy about the book is, you know, this is not an infallible, you know, author moving along from beginning to end. It's about growth and transformation in inner and outer worlds. And I think it has a lot of interest from that point of view. Yeah, there was a time, and I can remember it, and I was out at a conference in the East Coast, and the keynote speaker had three doctorate degrees, one in climatology, another one in geology, the other one was in oceanography. But he grew up the son of a fisherman. And I think his opening line was, is that I'm an academic, but I could probably outdrink everybody here in the room. <laughs> it was something like that. And he went through his whole presentation, but his concluding remarks were is that what I know from all of my academic studies is that temperatures go up and temperatures go down. But ultimately, my message to you is that humanity does not act up to its intellectual capacity. And that has stuck with me. And I made changes in my own life based on that, like asking myself, you know, am I acting up to my own intellectual capacity? And does my life, am what I'm doing? reflect what I know. And that's a lot of soul searching that a person has to go through. And then to be able to act on those realizations that, yeah, you know what, 
what I know and what I do are not the same things and I need to change. And I, that comes with, I think, with maturity and understand and your own, like you talked earlier on about mindfulness and being able to meditate. And I think a lot of that comes from those practices. Well, I think self-reflection and self-inquiry are really core practices of yoga and certainly of the yoga of meditation because you're always trying to understand whether you're acting in alignment with your purpose, with your highest values. And if you did something in a situation that doesn't reflect well on that, then you have to examine it. And I think that's the essence of, as you say, maturity. But it's also about a sense of purpose. And what am I doing here with this great education I've had, this great skill set that I had? Am I really working on stuff that matters to people? And can I bring other people along? And so we all go through that process. And I think what I tried to do in the book was just to shine some light on how it worked for me. And of course, not everything is in there. I mean, not every great inside and not every great stumble. Because mm. I'm a great fan of the Japanese proverb that says, fall down seven times, get up eight. <laughs> I like that. Yeah, I, I like, like that, that too. Now, it, doesn't so, quite, it doesn't quite make sense because like a lot of Japanese proverbs, it's designed to get you to think a little bit more. But the whole idea is we're all going to stumble. It's how we recover that matters. Yeah. Yeah. Jerry, I have a question for that, you know, and I don't know how you answer this in a simple way, but there is, we work in right now in a world where the status quo still holds the directive power in the world of architecture. We have a generation that's coming up that doesn't see that paradigm that's held by the status quo. It's not working for them. They're desiring change. They're desiring a cultural change. But there's economic issues, big economic issues that go along with changing a culture how do we get our head around that problem? I mean, it's not a simple thing. No, and I think everyone has pointed out in many forums that one of the things that we're realizing through this pandemic is the role of global economic inequality and the ability to survive the pandemic is a big issue, huge. And that until we address the issue of income inequality and inequality of access to resources and inequality of access to political influence, we're not going to get very far. And I think that's the, the real battle that's going on now. And we shall see how younger architects and younger people respond. But, you know, part of what you're describing is pretty common for the younger generation to be wanting to push the older generation aside, whether it's going back 100 years to the Bauhaus and all those people mm. rebelling against 19th century uh, formalism and kitsch, you know, excessive decoration, etc. Because you remember in Europe, until the First World War, there was 100 years of peace, relatively yeah. speaking. And so, you know, the cultures exploded and, you know, all of the sort of modern cultural influences in painting and literature were birthed in the late part of that period. And what the First World War exposed was a massive failure of political elites to act in their own best interests. And, you know, that I think is what we're seeing now. Yes. And so what you can't do anymore, and President Trump is a good example, you can't hide behind a facade of 
leadership or expertise, because unless you're really speaking the truth, people are going to figure it out in a heartbeat. While you're having your, your press conference, somebody's on their phone researching what you just said and claimed and realizing is not true. And, you know, it's instantaneous. So this is a problem for political leadership around the world. And of course, everyone loves the example of the young woman, Prime Minister of New Zealand, who mm. is responding in a wholly different way and really emblematic of that millennial generation mm. that is pushing very hard to grasp the levers of power, as it were. And we'll do that in a couple more election cycles. And I guess your Mr. Trudeau is kind of on the older end of that group, but it may be an mm-hmm. example. And then we'll have to realize what happens when you walk into a system that's basically early 20th century, mid 20th century political structures trying to make responses to today's problems work. Because, you know, we have this tremendous culture of government secrecy around the world. It's not just, you know, intelligence agencies in the Western countries. It's, you know, Russia, China, etc. And the idea that the government will protect itself at all costs from the truth, well, you can't do that anymore because citizens now know far more than anybody in government, and they're far more willing to tell you that. So, I, you know, I think this is a real challenging era for governance, forgetting who's in power. It's just for acting in our collective self-interest. And that, I think, is one of the issues that is being addressed through the American federal system is that states have lots of powers and they're starting to exercise them and realizing they can exercise them way ahead of the national government. So when it comes to climate change, we already have the Northeast, Pacific, Northwest, California, totally at odds with national direction in a positive way. That is going to change national direction because you can't have your biggest you know, groups of people telling you that they're not going to do what you want. It's just not going to work. And also coming aground with total conventional economics, you know, we still subsidize fossil fuels worldwide because everyone, you know, poor people depend on it in most countries. But as soon as we stop doing that, then all of a sudden the emperor is shown to have no clothes because those are not cheap sources of energy. We've just made them artificially mm-hmm. cheap. Yep. And all of a sudden, we already know solar and wind with appropriate storage or or grid integration outperform every other fossil fuel already. So why are we messing around? Because they don't have good lobbyists, that's why. (laughs) Well, that's some truth, but it's also, it's just what a a sales trainer that I used to love listening to called stinking thinking. Well, Zig Ziglar. Zig Ziglar, right. See you at the top. That's it, man. That was one of the first books I read. Okay. So we just have our mind doesn't want to look at a new reality. And that's where all the discussion the last 20 years around the circular economy and the regenerative economy and the sustainable economy has all focused is, well, there is another way to do this, folks. And by the way, when people try it, it really does work. That's where we're at today. And I think that tipping point, that grain of sand that's going to upset the whole bound of grains is pretty close at hand. The Edifice Complex will continue in just a moment. If you're enjoying this podcast, we need your help. We're not asking for money, just a minute of your time. 
Our goal is to make the Edifice Complex podcast as relevant, educational, and useful as possible. By having good ratings, we can reach the widest audience. Therefore, our request is two small things. If you haven't already, leave us a review and rating on iTunes. And subscribe to the Edifice Complex on YouTube, even if you normally only listen to the audio version. These two things will help us immensely. Also, if you would like Robert or Adam to speak, teach, or consult on your project or business, please email admin at edificecomplexpodcast.com. Thanks for your time, and now, back to the show. In the 70s, it was the oil shock and the massive increase in oil prices for geopolitical reasons, and it affected a lot of change, some good, some bad, right? And I think we're in a similar situation with, like, pandemic, massive drops in prices of oil at the moment, new technologies available, a change of generation, we're at another fourth turn in. All these things are coming together and it could go one way, good, or it could go bad, right? And I'm not sure which way it's going to go. I mean, when you look out, say, another generation, say 25 years from now, what do you see? Well, I see certainly people having to wrestle with a much more extreme climate events. For sure. Um, I see impacts on agricultural productivity that we haven't yet begun to think about. It's interesting right now, just the degree of global integration has meant that these diseases can spread. It's also meant that ideas can spread. And I just read today at the University of California, San Diego, there's 5,000 Chinese students. Now, they're not all there to steal intellectual property. No, no there because they're able to succeed in the sort of STEM education, if you will, and they're making contributions to research establishments all over the world. So we're living, going to live in a very different world where the U.S., which has been the hegemonist power since World War II, is no longer going to be seen that way. And within a generation, it's going to be a a world in which we're either closer together and closer towards our climate goals or all really suffering because of our lack of ability mm-hmm. to get consensus. And all of a sudden, if you think as an environmentalist, all of our dear friends among other species, 15% of them are going to be missing. They're going to be gone. They're going to be like the koalas in Australia. Yeah. All of a sudden, this... Mm-hmm creature that we dearly love was put away by a largely because of our actions. And we just have to deal with that. It's the same as the bison in the 19th century, mm-hmm. the American Great Plains, where we <clears throat> slaughtered them to feed people. But we saved enough so that we could recover them. So hopefully that will happen. And we saved enough wolves. We sent them all to Canada for 50 years. <laughs> Many uh, of them turned into lawyers and politicians, by the way. But we, yeah. but we, we brought them back <laughs> into the U.S. And interestingly enough, the whole ecology of Yellowstone National Park has changed when the wolves came back because the grazing animals no longer could just hang out and eat everything. They had to watch out for themselves. Mm-hmm. That changed everything. And then once there started to be a little more uh, aspen trees and the beavers came back and started building dams and then you got lakes, you know, all of a sudden, if we just leave nature alone before we destroy it totally, a lot of this stuff comes back over generations that we ought to think of ourselves, as you said early in the broadcast, as stewards yes. and as 
let's say, grandparents watching with pride over their grandchildren growing up because of what they've created. So we have to figure out how to do that while accommodating six or eight billion people in cities, which have to be supplied with resources from the countryside. That's one of the big challenges. On the other hand, I think we can do it because we've faced these challenges before. The question is how much suffering along the way. Yeah, that's it. Mm. I've changed. We've, history has shown humans are very adaptable, right? It's the collateral damage during the change. That's the variable mm. normally, right? I gave a talk two years ago at Texas Tech to a group of students who were in social work. What was I going to talk about to social workers? <laughs> and I did some research about heat waves right. and the effect of heat waves. And there was a wonderful book called, in fact, Heat Wave, that looked at a heat wave in Chicago in the 1990s that was especially brutal. I think it was effective temperatures and humidity was like 108 degrees or something. But the people who suffered the worst, as documented, very carefully documented, it was actually a PhD thesis by a social scientist, were predominantly old, black, and poor. And that's the people, and I told them this, and I told them this is why you have to think about climate change as an issue in social work, because the people that are going to suffer the most, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. certainly in the interim period, as we start to experience more extreme heat waves, are going to be exactly the people that you call clients, but who are human beings that just happen to be old, black, and poor. And that is something we're going to have to deal with in the same way as we still have to deal with the, I think what one poet has called the ghost of the American Indian and everything that we had done in our settlement process to the original inhabitants of the continent. And I think in Canada, you've done a slightly better job. And part of the job has just come through nomenclature. Mm. By calling them First Nations, you've given them equal status with yourselves. Now, you may not treat them always that way, but all of a sudden, it's different. Yeah. I think it's partly because of the lower population density in Canada and the fact that there was an awful lot of Canada for very few people to find, explore, <laughs> less hospitable yeah. than the uh, Americas. But I think it's also the fact that we had a policy of, because we had a policy of extermination. That's just the way to put it. And I think to some degree, every settlement country followed that same policy because it's the only way to win in warfare. But as a result, we created this incredibly bad karma that we're still living with today. And the only thing that recovered it was 50 years ago when we just legalized gambling on reservations so that they could at least have incomes and health care and education. Yeah. But it didn't deal with any of the other social issues. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, that, Jerry, you bring up, and that's a, I mean, that, that whole discussion could take hours in itself. But one of the things I do know is that, you know, I asked myself and colleagues, 100 years now in the future, do we still want to be talking about these issues, you know, because they've been going on for so long. And at some point we have to resolve them. We can't make this a lifetime discussion. You know, let's face it. The British empire left a lot of bad karma in a lot of different places. You know, our forefathers, we have nothing to be proud of. It doesn't matter whether you're from America or from Canada. It's the same group of people that 
you know, used extermination policies. And we saw complete First Nation communities, particularly on the East Coast, that were wiped out, completely wiped out, you know, from the youngest child to the oldest person in the community that were taken. And so, you know, you, <laughs> you mentioned this thing about taking, admitting what happened, taking responsibility for it. That has to happen and we have to resolve it because we can't keep having these discussions, you know, 100 years from now. Well, that's certainly one of the major dynamics in the U.S. right now is the Black and Latino populations particularly. And because they're larger and Latino population definitely growing. But I was shocked when I was politically active in Southern California in the 1980s and started to learn more about the Hispanic community here, which, as you recall, it was only in the mid-19th century that California was part of Mexico, right? Yeah. And the whole Southwest. And I discovered that there were segregated schools in the 1950s where people of Hispanic origin were not allowed to go to school with Anglo people mm. in certain places in Southern California. And it just shocked me because, of course, I knew about segregation in, in the African-American community, but I didn't realize that it always happened. And so this mm-hmm. was a pattern that ultimately in World War II resulted in us putting Japanese in concentration camps. But that one seemed to resolve itself pretty well because it was short mm-hmm. and it was mitigated by the volunteers, the Japanese-American volunteers. Yeah who fought in the war, and basically because of a cultural attitude of acceptance, if you will, it came right after the war. It only was four years, and all of a sudden they were back, much more back in the mainstream, so to speak. Don't want to whitewash it, but it was different. It wasn't ongoing. And after 25 years after the war, we were all driving Japanese cars in California, and, you know listening to Japanese radio sets and trying to decipher the instructions on various <laughs> things that we had to put together <laughs> that were written in, in sort of pidgin English. But, you know, that happened. But this rec- truth and reconciliation, we still have monuments to Confederate heroes throughout the American South, which was public monuments, which was, after all, a war to preserve slavery. So from their point of view, And we have yet to really, in a powerful political way, get rid of them. And that, I think, is one of the big issues. And, you know, it's funny how societies are, you know, the Anzac Day was last week. And Anzac Day is Australia and New Zealand, who were volunteers, so to speak. They were conscripted in World War I that the British used for cannon fodder and for the most part. And, you know, they were brave. They were young. But they were effectively part of that empire that you mentioned, Robert, of trying to bring in people from all over the world. And it destroys the empire to try to preserve it in that way. Mm -hmm. And I think the real problem in the U.S. is you cannot have a so-called American way of life that leaves out so many people and that has such destructive consequences. So it's a multi-generational task, but it's one that we're not yet up to. And I think that's a spiritual failing in America that has to be reckoned with by younger people over the next few decades. But, you know, we had one one candidate for president calling for reparations. 
to the African-American community, um, that doesn't have a resonance with us, you know, and, and for a whole lot of reasons. And yet, what can you do if you don't tell the truth? How far can you get? And so that, I think, is our big challenge. And yet, it's going to be nested. If there were no challenges, there would be no zest in life. So we have to figure this one out. You know, I'm, I'm actually optimistic on this front because when I look at my kids, all right, they're kids from a wealthy upper middle class family, but the kids they mix with, they go to, I've seen them go through schools and colleges. The racism that we grew up with doesn't exist for them. It's actually all around economic organization, mm-hmm. not race organization. Right. And to your point, Robert, I think the only way you deal with the past in North America is by not making states within states, nations within nations, right? The French in Quebec, the First Nations, right? There is a housing development in Vancouver where you can only buy a house there if you're First Nations. So flip that around. If that was an all-black community or an all-white community and no one else was allowed in, there'd be an uproar, right? Yet there's not. So the only way you really get through this is you acknowledge the past and you have to say, right, we're all in this together. Because you can't have states within states, nations within nations, because ultimately that is a cancer that, in my opinion, metastasizes at some point. But I'm not prime minister of anything, which is, and there's probably a good reason for that. <laughs> <laughs> but I am optimistic, because when I see how my kids react and deal with things and their attitudes, they are not yeah. the attitudes of my generation. That means change will come. Right. And so, as I said earlier, you know, our mm. culture changes as generations change, mm. but our our issue with climate change is we don't have that much time no. to fight significant changes. And I think that's where those of us who do see these things in a different way yeah. have to stay active. And, you know, I'm a, I would be probably called a pensioner in 19th century Russian novels or something. (laughs) But I'm still out there because I think this stuff is important. And yet it's clear that you have to let younger people lead the way. And I think the interesting thing about the Greta Thunberg is the way that people have been willing to let younger people speak. Yes. And... Not to say, well, you know, when you learn more, you'll change your mind. It's like, no, facts are facts, and there's no way to spin them. But when I learn more, I might be more effective at arguing for this viewpoint. But right now, I just say, how come you grown-ups are not listening to what people have been saying for 30 years? Because, you know, 50% of the carbon in the atmosphere has been added since we first got the warning Yes, of the excess carbon, Right. Yeah. So all of a sudden, it's like, yeah, we were warned. It's just too inconvenient. And I think that's why Al Gore called his slideshow an inconvenient truth. That was it's a clever because, title. <laughs> well, it's because, you know, he's a politician. He understands the power yeah. of words. But it, it was true. And that was now almost 20 years in the past. So all of a sudden, it's like, well, at what point is there a tipping point? Is there a, I used to call it a judo point, a little point at which you can take the momentum of the existing system and use it against itself. Mm -hmm. Uh, What point does that happen? And this may be it because the oil industry and petroleum industry is going to be significantly weakened economically by this crisis and is going to lose political power for that reason. And maybe there's a way in which an effective political leader can take advantage of that. 
And I think in Canada, it's going to be the same way. You're going to see a lot of suffering in Alberta, particularly. Oh, yeah. We already are. It's, yeah. You know, yeah. people are going to be leaving the province because they, they can't afford it. And people are going to be skipping out on their leases and everything else happening because it's just not possible if you don't have this artificial driver to do anything, I think, but farm wheat in the in the prairies. Well, yeah. you know, if you go back and, and speaking about Alberta, I mean, agriculture was a big part of our economy, bigger than oil and gas. Mm. And oil and gas really has only been the last sort of 20 years where it's sort of dominated. But, you know, prior to the pandemic, we had, you know, in the downtown core, I think we were pushing, you know, somewhere around 20, I can't remember what the numbers, it was high, the, the vacancy rate. And some of the brand new buildings had really high vacancy rates, like pushing 70, 80%. But overall, the, the downtown core was, you know, a big part of it was hurting. Well, the pandemic has just basically put the nail in the coffin. I took a photograph uh, yesterday and put it up on social media. And my comment was the only thing missing was the tumbleweeds, you know, <laughs> because there was nobody downtown. And, you know, when you think about all the businesses that were supporting. Downtown, are you Calgary or Edmonton? Calgary. Yeah, you know, so it's it is a tough, tough place to live right now. Sure, I have a question for you because I know we're sort of getting on in the interview mm-hmm. here, and, and one of the, my concerns I have is that you know the last fifteen, twenty years of the green movement, we've created all of these programs, and we're letting the programs drive direction. And where the concern came in my mind was I had to do a literature review for a paper that I delivered in Vancouver, and we were we were looking at. A history, 35-year history in our database of buildings that we had worked on and looked at, you know, low-performance buildings to high-performance buildings. And one of the conclusions that we came from the literature review is that we know that we can design buildings, condition them with fluid temperatures, and now we're going to get back into the engineering side, of 77.5 degrees plus or minus 22.5 degrees. We can heat and cool buildings with those low temperatures. And so where my brain is going is that we know that we can condition buildings with this really low quality energy, but the programs that we've created and are leaving in place, as all of us are retiring, Mm. we've left these documents in place for people to design buildings. And it's like we forgot about the science. We forgot about the engineering because we have the documents to provide the guidance. And my argument was, is get rid of all the freaking programs and just let architects and engineers apply the knowledge that they have. In other words, you could say... (laughs) No building shall be designed that doesn't use 77 and a half degrees plus or minus 22.5 degrees Fahrenheit. And that's at the, that's at the conversion point of energy. So forget that automatically eliminates combustion, right? Mm-hmm. And that's what we found is that we found that when you look at that temperature range, and again, what we're talking about is the human body as the model, right? Those are temperatures lower than the core temperature of the human body. And so what's your thoughts on that? Have the programs that we've created, these manuals and policies, Are these actually, you know, not the things that we want to leave behind? Have these actually created more harm than good? Well, I think that, you know, that goes into the whole discussion around building codes and, you know, where they came from and and so forth, because everyone needs to have a a quality measure or metric. But I've been been corresponding the last year or so with a woman in New Zealand Mm. named Rochelle Aid. Oh, we just interviewed her. Yeah. And, you know, she's also like, well, you say this is the right way to do things, prove it. And, you know, I think she's coming from a researcher's point of view as opposed to a designer's point of view. But remember, one of the reasons that we have all of this stuff now 
is because architects and engineers together weren't doing the job properly. And I think that's sort of the challenge. It isn't you particularly or your colleagues. It's, you know, the average working engineer wants a manual. And because, you know, it's the only way to be productive is to do things the same way over and over again, so to speak. And that, I think, is a big challenge. And that's where I hope that architects working in a system where they are a minor player in design, because if you look at the U.S., architects are not responsible for anything except building performance up to one year after it's built. And then it's the building owner. And so who has the power? In one of my books, I spent a lot of time learning about things in Germany. You talk about cultural and legal environment. In Germany, the architect is legally responsible for the building and has control over the construction process all the way through. And of course, the engineers that they hire and so forth. But the architect is the master builder. Here, the architect is just a functionary in a big system, honestly. They may think of themselves (laughs) differently, but they're just a functionary. You know, they get 8% of design revenues. In Europe, the architect gets about 12%, but they have to do competitions for everything. So there's everything big. So there's a lot of, you know, free services you have to offer to do competitions. So, you know, a lot of this is cultural and legal. Another example I found in Germany, it was against the law for anyone to be seated more than seven meters from a window. So that means effectively buildings can't be more than 44 feet wide unless you use H's or E's or other, you know, formats so they can have light because it's inhuman. And there was always the idea of sitting somebody in a place where they can't even see outdoors during the day is inhuman. And I had a German architect friend I interviewed once who was given a faculty job at the University of Southern California, and they wanted to give him a basement office <laughs> as your faculty. He refused. And finally, they put him in a second floor because he was making such a stink about it. But it was, to him, immoral for someone to be cooped up without a view of the world for eight hours a day, what have you. So I think a lot of this is cultural, legal strictures, but do we really have a system in which architects and engineers could design the best buildings for the budget, et cetera? And the answer is no. And so in my book on the world's greenest buildings, I gave a whole long chapter to the whole idea of changing the process. And if you want to change outcomes, you got to change design process. Correct. Yes. That was a, particularly a building at the National Renewable Energy Laboratory, but it was a good example in general of process management being a key variable in outcomes. Yeah. And, and not adding cost. In fact, the cost, so it went from a, you know, a fixed design program and a variable cost, which is always over the budget, to a fixed budget variable scope design program. Yeah. That was the RSF building you were talking about. But to me, it's a more generalized thing is why don't we shoot for the best buildings we can possibly build, whatever the budget is, and then really train ourselves in integrated design methods and other things that will allow that to happen. And that I think even years after this whole idea has been mooted by lots of people, you still see... People like I remember an electrical engineer telling me once, I said, Well, why don't you work with the architect on daylighting and you'll have less to do, you know, in terms of lighting design? He said, yeah. oh, 
No, I just want to show up when it's my time on the agenda. <laughs> you know, and I think that expresses the idea of a lot of engineers is I'm busy. When you guys figure out what kind of building you want, I'll come in and I'll make it work. And, you know, that defaults then to lowest common denominator, practices, et cetera, et cetera. So it may be that it isn't architects and engineers that's the problem. Maybe it's the process that's being used and the language that's being used in the process. And I'll bet if we actually tore apart the language and reconstructed it, that we would get better results. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. So, Jerry, I'll give you a couple of, well, I'll give you one example where we would work with the client before they hired the architects and the engineers. And the outcomes, when someone came to us for, for our practice, our goal was to give them an indoor environmental specification and an energy budget. And the whole process led to the client leaving our office, then finding the design professionals and saying, okay, here's the indoor environment we want. Here's the energy budget that we've allowed for. Now you give us a building that works according to these specifications. Of course, you're designing from the inside out, which... Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And that initially caused um, (laughs) some... Obviously, some tensions because it was going against the traditional design approach. But what happened is that once these projects were then developed and commissioned and people started to realize that it's possible to get awesome indoor environments within a reasonable energy budget and that the architecture is just not that difficult, that this led to obviously, you know, the growth of our company. And so you're right. It's the processes that we use that need to be taken apart. And rebuilt up, and we know they work. You know, it's funny when I uh, when I wrote the book of the Green Building Trends in Europe, I got acquainted with the Transolar people. Yeah, and the people Thomas Auer. Yeah, and the people at Benish Architecture in Stuttgart. And I said, well, you know, how do you guys design building? He said, well, we the architects, we invite the engineers over, we sit out on the deck, and we have an espresso, and we talk about what we're trying to achieve. And then they go away and they come back a week or so later, tell us essentially what you've been telling your clients that, well, here's the energy budget and here's the indoor environmental specifications. So worked up, as we used to say in college, from first principles. Yep. And and then we all work happily together. And that's how collaboration is supposed to work professionally as opposed to the compartmentalization but it was also because they were enormously talented on both sides and they had developed this method of collaboration because of wanting to grow their firm and win competitions and so forth. But also there was a respect yeah. mm-hmm. on both sides for the skill sets of the other. And I think the way I experienced it, particularly working for engineering firms, was that there was occasionally an architect would have great respect for an engineer, but oftentimes they saw them as interchangeable commodities. And I remember once I was with a very large firm in a meeting and I said, you know, you guys always use the same structural engineer on all your projects. And there was a guy in Portland and I said, how come? He said, well, here's how it works. We get a project. We have three or four different ways that we think we can approach the design we have Mr. Engineer come over and we sit around for a couple hours and he tells us which ones are going to work structurally and which ones aren't. And then we go forward and we can get more done in those two hours than if we tried to 
you know, come up with this game plan, ship it off to the engineers. They're going to tell us how stupid we were that this never worked <laughs> structurally or hugely expensive. And then we go back and redesign. So there was this sense of mature collaboration among talented people, which we like to think of. But the fact is, most engineers in buildings are journeymen. And they're draft. They're barely one step above drafters. And let's be honest about it. So they do need rules and handbooks. And mm. for the average building, when you talk about buildings, unusual buildings, and buildings that are landmarks of one kind or another, then I think you need a different skill set, a different talent set, including collaboration. In fact, one of the construction firms that really took off in, particularly in California during the growth of Silicon Valley, was a firm called DPR Construction. They're still around. There were three guys' names. But what they stressed, which was unusual at the time, this is now 20 plus years ago, was collaborative process of construction. That they were going to be in the architectural meetings from day one. They were going to understand the architects and clients' objectives and their budgets from day one. And they were going to be part of the team as opposed to being hired out at the end. Well, they really made everybody else in their industry, because all of a sudden they were getting all the work from Intel and all the work from the big Silicon Valley companies because they had a better way to do things. Mm-hmm. So I do think this notion of if you have a better way to do things and it's demonstrated in actual practice, you know, the world does respond. And it just, a lot of this stuff takes too long because a building project, big building, three to five years before you can even measure results, right? Absolutely. Which time time you've gone on to many other projects. And, you know, some of my engineers I work with might be managing eight to 10 projects at a time as senior engineers. And, you know, you just know how little oversight you're getting when you have that much (laughs) on the table because they were the the only guys that you could be absolutely 100% sure of wouldn't make a mistake and wouldn't do something dumb that you'd have to go back and fix later. And I think a lot of shops run this way, that there's always one savant, one person who's going to not only train the younger people, but also going to be the ones that you never hear about. They're never in the news. They never write articles, but they get the work out. And I ran across a big architectural firm in New York City, and the owner introduced me to one of the senior people there. It was a gentleman from India. And his role at the firm was no drawings ever went out that he didn't see. That's all he did. He was checking them for quality, for conformance to various standards. But you could not send something to a client without running it by Mr. So-and-so from India. And those people are invaluable. But they're not the people you're going to send to meetings to give talks. And so you don't know about them as you work very closely with those companies. Mm. But they get the work done. And I think that's emblematic of the issue in the industry, which is, this is a trial and error business with emphasis on the latter. <laughs> yes, very much <laughs> right? so. And, this, and you know, it's not going to change unless you want every building to look the same like the Soviet era. Oh, God, yeah. Or the Chinese, <laughs> Chinese buildings where architects are basically drafters and that's it. Yeah. So Now I hear you. So listen, we're coming up on uh, an hour and a half, actually. So we've had a good, I want to be respectful of your time. So to wrap up, is there any final thoughts, any final message you want to leave the world before you get on your starship? 
Don't just do something, sit there. <laughs> and think about it a lot. <laughs> oh, don't think about it. Just watch your thoughts. Watch yeah. your thoughts. Yeah. No, I, I think that the real issue here is we have to bring our own best qualities, the qualities that we have in our personal life, into our business life and our political life in ways that we may not have done before. And that if you do that, the world changes dramatically. Excellent. I couldn't agree more with that. So yeah. I want to thank you for your time. And I want to thank you for bringing up some great references. Bonfire to Vanities. I'm going to rewatch that movie this weekend. No, you should movie. actually read the book. Yeah, yeah, the book is great. Movie, yeah. you should read the book. Ellis yeah. Easton, right? Ellis Easton, is it? The other thing That's I like. Uh, Tom, Tom Wolfe. Is it Tom Wolfe? And the other one was the fact that Lead is the son of Briam. I love that. I completely forgot about that. I used to know that and I forgot about it because Lead has eclipsed it, right, in terms of marketing and presence. Well, not in terms of total projects. No, this is the best kept secret in order. The Brits are just terrible at marketing themselves, right? Well, I think it's because Bream, you have to do Bream for residential projects. Yes. Yeah. By law. So it's a whole different environment. But you know, the ideas were there and Bream first figured out how to do life cycle analysis and yes. compare one set of impacts with another. And then USGBC under the leadership of Christine Irvin, the first real CEO in the late 90s, early 2000s, brought a guy over named Nigel Howard. And Nigel now in Sydney, but he was the technical guy there. Actually, I think originally a chemist. But right. he, he had the technical smarts and helped the system grow that way. And then, of course, you know, lead is basically designed by committee. Yeah. The old saying that a camel is a horse designed by committee. So. Through <laughs> <Screw> that. <laughs> okay. So, look, thank you very much for coming on. It's great, great yeah, to Jeff. have you on. Thanks and for the pleasure to and Good I wish you all the best with the book. I'll, uh, I'll make sure we plug the book as well in all the material we put out. But great interview. Thank you for coming on and best of luck with the book. So, Jerry Udelson on again for the second time, our first repeat. I always love having him on. What did you think of that interview? Oh, it was awesome, actually. I was a bit worried at first when he was talking about meditation. I thought he was going to go a bit woo-woo, but he didn't at all, actually. It's quite interesting because... I'm a fan of meditation. I find it hard to do because I suffer from some mad monkey brain syndrome. But, <laughs> you know, using it as a reflection tool and a way to focus, that's really its power, I think. Obviously, it's a calming thing as well. But, you know, taking that as a way of looking back over your career and seeing what's important and not important is quite interesting, right? Yeah. He's a deep thinker, you know, and he's uh, widely informed like his his breadth of knowledge in so many different subject matters like he's you know really has a an ability to define the picture and then each of the pieces of the puzzle within that picture and so it doesn't matter whether it's economics or sociology or engineering finance art whatever he finds that piece of the puzzle that he wants to talk about and he puts it together really well yeah, he does, actually. You know, it's, again, he's an acknowledged deep thinker on these things, right? But I liked his, uh, some of the things he was saying there, like, was it, we are not our work, we are bigger than our work. That is so true, because sometimes you get so focused on what you're doing, right? You've got to step back, yeah. see the big picture, and, you know, isn't that the essence of sustainability, right? Sitting back and looking at the macro, not the micro. Yeah, sure it is. 
Yeah, and you know, he uh, with his new book, you know, he has a message in there. And I actually, I didn't get a chance to actually ask him what it's uh, how is it awkward to talk about spirituality or you know the, the those sort of discussions as you're up there talking about <laughs> building performances. But he does. He is able to talk about it in a way that has meaning, and mm. and I really appreciated his approach on that. So it is hard to talk about spirituality because you, if you're not careful, you sound like a stripper who's found Jesus, or you know, you sound <laughs> so out there that people tune out. Right? It's very hard to pull that because there is an element of spirituality in it. You know, when you talk about sustainability, for me, it's about being a good steward of what we have now, so you don't screw it up for the people that are coming in the future. Right? Yeah, it's about stewardship. It's about curating what we're doing so we don't mess up in the long term, right? Because you know we're we're here for a finite amount of time. We focus on our time, but you know that's what people miss with sustainability. You get so boxed into oh, I've got to get Lee Platinum, I've got to get Brienne Excellent, but you know that is such a small part of the overall picture, really. Yeah. Yeah. It really is. And of course, no who better to comment on that than Jerry, right? <laughs> Godfather Green. I love that, man. That is a, that is a moniker to behold, right? <laughs> yeah, not too many people can have that title, that's for sure. He's seen a lot of change and he's very humble about his observations or thoughts. You know, yeah. like there are some people who get really, really vocal, you know, almost to the extent with their lunatics, you know, they're very crazy about it, but, but uh, sometimes like us, actually. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, like, I like to think I'm, we're on the lunatic fringe, but on the friendly fringe, you know? Right, exactly. Yeah, exactly. But he, uh, you know, he's very conservative and reserved, but again, it, it goes back to his broad thinking, you know. So we need to listen to guys like Jerry and read his stuff listen to his words and pay attention to it. And, you know, we talked again about the youth and their skill sets and making changes. And they certainly look at the world from a different perspective, right? Yeah. I mean, to wrap this one up, yeah, I often ask the people we interview, you know, who's the example? If I'm a young engineer or a young architect, Mm -hmm. who do I want to look to? Who's the Muhammad Ali? Well, you know, maybe it's Jerry. (laughs) You know, yeah, if you're really, a young yeah. person and you you, know, yeah. you want to model yourself on someone who's had a big career and made an impact, then that's a good place to look, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. You know, he's got the academic experience. He's got the life experience. He wasn't afraid to make changes. It was nice to hear him talk about his wife and, you know, sort of their relationship as, as Jerry's gone on his journey. God yeah. bless her. <laughs> I can only imagine, you know, the stuff that... Uh, you know, she obviously was very patient and very supportive of him. So it's nice to hear that side of the story. We often don't, oftentimes don't get to hear that side of it, right? So it's nice no, to I mean, share it. Between his book writing and work, I mean, she's the sustainability equivalent of a golf widow, right? Yeah. <laughs> so just, are you done? Do you have to do another book? <laughs> <laughs> Can we go out somewhere? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, I know. What do you do, man? It doesn't matter what career path, if you're passionate about it, does take a support system to help you do it and you know we both very lucky from that perspective and not everybody has that and you know what's it's it's interesting adam like when you think about where we're at with the covid times a lot of people are working at home couples are forced to work closer quarters and deal with the issues that come along with that and you know out of this will come uh, of course relationships that are stronger and some that are going to be weaker and Mm. you know and it's just the it is the way it is yeah I agree. So, you know, that was a great interview for me, though. I'm really yep. glad he came on. And, you know, I yeah. think 
putting him out there as a role model that I can't see anything negative to that. No bad can come from that, right? Yeah, if you totally pick a bit you, of man. inspiration up as a young, someone young in your career, you could do a lot worse than following Jerry's path, in my view. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, man. All right, All right. take care. See you on the next Always one. Always a pleasure. All right. Cheers. Bye. You've been listening to the Edifice Complex podcast with Adam Muggleton and Robert Bean. To access show notes for this episode, visit edificecomplexpodcast.com. Also, if you would like Robert or Adam to speak, teach, or consult on your project or business, please email admin at edificecomplexpodcast.com. See you next time. Adam, it's time to thank some people who are on our side because we're on their side. You found a new tool, software. Blue Rhythm commissioning software. Robert, I sure have. I think Blue Rhythm is what I've been looking for all these years. Building commissioning can be chaos at the best of times. Most projects I consult on really suffer from poor information management. You know, it's 2019, yet the property and construction industry seems to be firmly stuck in the 20th century paperwork world. I think people mistake emails and PDFs and Microsoft files on their servers and all the different PCs as a digital solution. In reality... It's just unorganized chaos. Do you want to streamline your commissioning process and save time and money? Do you want to go paperless and increase efficiency? Blue Rhythm is a cloud-based software solution built specifically for building commissioning professionals. Blue Rhythm digitizes your custom forms and checklists, allows collaboration across project teams, and automates reporting, leaving you to focus on what matters. Their team help you onboard the test sheets you've developed over the years. You can even send it some in paper, and they will... Digitize that and put it in the Blue Rhythm system for you. In my opinion, Blue Rhythm pays for itself in time saved on paperwork on a single project. For a demo or to start a free trial, go to bluerhythm.com. That's where rhythm is spelled R-I-T-H-M like algorithm. Bluerhythm.com. Tell them the Edifice Complex sent you there.